energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not really. It's the various factions under him and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There are certain key things that we want from India and there are certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Ewan, I've been somewhat inspired by the uh, 80s and 90s television series Treasure Hunt in my preparation for today's programme as I felt like I was poring over a map for most of the morning trying to figure out where Rishi Sunak was speaking to because he's been having his day day out on the local radio stations. Yes, 8.52, where was he? Uh, where was he? I he don't know. BBC Radio Berkshire. Oh, well, okay. That was on his way home, obviously. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> well, funny fact, that was the last one, but he did a whole round of BBC interviews. York, West Midlands, Manchester, Shropshire, Radio T's, Three Counties Radio. Which I just had to ask, which three counties are those? <laughs> and our next guest knows all about it. We'll come to, come to Stuart in a minute. Uh, Radio Cornwall, Radio Berkshire. Yeah, a whole round of them. This is in the news because last year it was very much uh, in focus, wasn't it? It's been going on for years, but because Liz Truss's premiership was looking... Short, first of all. It was definitely short. We didn't know that at the time, but it was looking rocky, wasn't it, already Mm. at this stage last year? And these, this round of local radio interviews were pretty painful, weren't they, for Liz Truss? Well, look, it's it's quite a feat of stamina that you need because it's an hour long and essentially each of them gets about eight minutes for the interview. So it's short and essentially you go from interview to interview to interview. So if, if you think about it, it's a bit kind of like doing about 10 job interviews in a row via Zoom where you're speaking to a different group of people every few minutes and you have to try and figure out uh, how you're going to best present yourself across your key points. A couple of common themes, though, we heard in the interviews this morning. Yeah, uh, HS2 came up a number of times and not just from uh, the northern stations. He decided it would not be uh, the right time to announce a massive uh, shift in infrastructure policy. He ducked those questions. Uh, He was asked about... uh, uh, buying Reading Football Club, a tongue-in-cheek question from uh, BBC Radio Berkshire, declined mm. to buy Reading <laughs> uh, Football Club. Now, look, I think I think Prime Ministers can make a, make a bit of an error in this thinking that this could be a, a relatively easy way to spend an hour. It, it is not an easy way to spend an hour. These uh, these radio presenters have spent had a, a lot of time to prepare themselves for this, and it is a big interview, and they're going to throw everything at the PM. And I think it is it is a very difficult way to spend an hour. And it's also a chance to discuss local issues with the, the most powerful politician in the country too. And, and HS2 is a great crystallisation of that too, because obviously it travels through quite a lot of the parts of the country that he was speaking to. And each part of the country is going to have a different take on exactly what high, high Speed Rail 2 could mean for them. And the beginning and end of that line potentially very relevant to them too. Yeah, BBC Radio Manchester, you won't be surprised to hear, pushed on it uh, really hard, uh, finally culminating in asking for a simple yes or no answer, which the PM declined to give. Interesting, of course, that uh, Rishi Sunak will also be going to Manchester uh, later in the week for Mm. party conference. Uh, and it's an uh, interesting backdrop, isn't it? The discussion... Well, it could have been a difficulty getting there by train. The, train the strikes are on, yeah. Time. Apparently he's driving, sensible. Uh, right, well, let's dig into what we learned from these uh, interviews. We've got our government editor, Stuart Biggs, with us in studio for more. Um, Stuart, by the way, well done for knowing which three counties were the three counties um, I, you've de- I definitely <laughs> learned something from. But, I mean, look, what was the, the common thread through what we heard from the Prime Minister this morning? Well, I think I think the point that you made on HS2 was the the big one for me, and and as you say, it it runs through so many um, different types of constituencies in the in in England, and 
you know, his line that um, he says spades in the ground, I think sort of downplays how high tech HS2 really is, to be honest. But, you know, the, the line that he's only committing to London to Birmingham, and we can talk about the London bit of that if you want to. But, uh, you know, that's it's it's a line that I would be very surprised um, that could hold into a conference in Manchester because I think the way it is right now, not committing to Birmingham to Manchester, but not all, but also not ruling it out, uh, is a line that would uh, basically lead to four days of the Manchester conference being only about HS2. And, you know, it, it may be that he's decided that that's the worst, uh, the, the best possible, you know, out of a series of bad options, that's the best one. But but nevertheless, it's it's a very risky, you know, annual conference is the moment where he set, he's supposed to set out a vision for the next year. And that's heightened this year because it could be the last annual conference before an election next year. So I think that the, the stakes on this one are pretty high and it's a very risky line to be going into conference with. I read a source in the Times uh, saying that the PM was uh, taken aback by the amount of uh, of hostility to the possibility of shortening HS2, which which kind of surprised me. I, I, it surprises me that he could think that this isn't such a sensitive issue. And, I, and the way we looked at it this morning in our story was that, of course, you've got the kind of train user uh, type of constituency, that this is a very important line. It's, in a sense, it was promised as you know a, a brand new backbone for transport infrastructure in, in the country. Uh, it was a huge part of kind of linking northern and midland cities to London. Very big promise. But it's, all, it's not just train users. If you think about the people in Bucks, and we mentioned the three counties radio, um, you know, Bucks and, and, the, and the counties running up to Birmingham, who are basically getting all the construction, all the development, all the disruption that that means, these mm. machines running through towns day in, day out, day night. They were getting all that. But part of the promise was you, this is a transformative project for the UK, for, for England, but also for the UK. And that's one promise. It's a very different mentality to then say we've given up all that, sacrificed all that for a project that is now being dramatically watered down. And I think that's a very different uh, political mindset. So I think if he is surprised at the pushback, that's probably a bit naive. How did the Prime Minister do overall? I mean, famously, Liz Truss did not do very well on this particular round last year. And in fact, the radio presenters won an award for their questioning of her. So how did Rishi Sunak perform under this pressure over HS2? Yeah, uh, certainly the comparisons with last year, if that's the benchmark, then he's going to be much happier. But I would say that the the political dynamics uh, are very different this year. Um, as you said in the in the intro, trust was already wobbly at this point. Heading into conference, there was all sorts of things already starting to go wrong, and the and the the, the radio round um, sort of compounded some of the issues. It really put her on the back foot going into party conference. Um, it, it it is different dynamic this year for Sunak. He's he's well behind in the polls, but with a with a wee bit of uptick. Uh, recently sort of taking some of the sting out of that. There's no great um, groundswell within the political Tory party to to start thinking about a change of leader. That's not to say that there isn't a wee bit of jostling going on for what happens after Sunak, but I don't think there's a serious risk right now for him that 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 would manifest itself uh, in the same way that it was 
already becoming a risk for trust last year. Politicians are used to dodging questions from journalists, and obviously Sunak is a lot slicker than than trust. But do you think we we, we learn any more from this from this format? It's as you said, it's it's a very um, challenge challenging hour for for a prime minister who looks at uh, national. Um, issues predominantly, but just by the nature of the job. And, but but obviously, when you're doing a local politics radio local. round, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 local. But that becomes very local when you start to do. And and you and I think uh, the radio tease interview was very interesting, and it was talking about specific schools and specific hospitals, and and they're talking about the crumbling concrete and 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 that's obviously. Yeah, I don't think. It's it's hard. he's obviously doing a lot of prep ahead of these. You you can kind of his team knows what's coming, but at the same time, to answer a, a question about funding for a specific mm. hospital is a different comfort zone. You know, it's a different mm. zone for a, a prime minister. I did, there were moments when he was more convincing, and 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 then other times when uh, it was hard to see a direct answer to the question. And I think you know, if, I think the the question on Radio Cornwall. The question was about overconstruction of housing and the pressure that that's putting on infrastructure and and the fact that housing developments are taking place without extra GP surgeries being built and and then that and schools and that kind of thing and I think he ended up he ended up blaming labor for blocking his plan to build a hundred thousand more homes which ah. I thought you know that was a kind of <laughs> was not, kind not of an example <laughs> of how the national focus can can mm. come unstuck when you're talking about local issues. But did we actually learn anything new from these interviews? Just, just that uh, you know this this sort of two weeks we've had where Sunak is doing what he would call a reset or, or putting the UK on a new trajectory. Of course, it's I wouldn't say it's something that we learnt new today, but it it does it does appear to be um, a shift of focus that he's sticking with, and, and this is going to be. Um, the centerpiece of of how the Tories go into the election next year, and and it's about it's about forgetting the last thirteen years of his party being in power, and even the bit where he was chancellor, uh, you know, which is the, the sort of bit of HS two that um, slightly gets forgotten that he was the chancellor when the lead spur was scrapped, for example. Mm-hmm. But but I but I do think that his pitch right now is is about. It's not about the last 13 years. It's about a prime minister that says he's going to do something very different from now. Uh, it's a very risky political strategy, I think. But, um, you know, we've, we've seen briefings from in the various papers around his team. And I think we reported ourselves on Saturday uh, that the, they're, they're calling it sensible populism, but they're also calling it sort of let Rishi be Rishi. And, and that seems to be... Go, uh, the, the the move going forward. On that subject, I want to ask you actually about about the green shift because there's been some polling on this, isn't there? And, and I know you've written about this for Bloomberg. The, what it's what happened last week, you know, the the shifting, delaying the ban on on fossil new sales of new fossil fuel cars, and there was some movement around how quickly people would have to get a, a heat pump versus a gas gas boiler and that kind of thing. What the polling shows is that underlying these moves um, it is is support. There is support for... There is a fear about the cost of this green energy transition, and especially during the cost of living crisis. So, so in a sense, he's kind of... 
shooting into an open goal uh, on certain certain uh, policies. And arguably, there is a constituency that that is worried about the cost of HS2, and and there is an argument for for diverting some funds to to you know if it means that potholes can't be filled in or HS2. You know, if you if you put a question to a voter, maybe they will say actually it's better to fill in the potholes. But but the broader risk to him, I think, is that in doing this, it it's creating a sense of chaos and U-turn. But underlying that is a sense that the party has got the country has got itself into a mess that requires these drastic steps. Mm. Now that's part of the him saying, "Okay, forget the last thirteen years." But it's also kind of a gamble to say that voters will also, will let you know will forget the last thirty. Do you know what I mean? It's a sort of it's a sort of I'm the reset, but it's not entirely clear that people will let him do the reset. Yeah, I want to ask you too about a story around Labour today as well. And this is to do with their policy on private schools. They had promised to scrap the charitable status for private schools, but now they've gone back on that. What's what's happened? Well, this is quite an interesting story this morning in the sense that Labour, Labour's argument is that it was always um, about uh Putting VAT or putting putting tax on uh, school fees for private schools, and that charitable, uh, scrapping the school's charitable status sort of became a shorthand for that. And their argument this morning is that you can do the VAT and you can do the business rates on private schools without scrapping the overall charitable status. But the if we just sort of separate the practical, but just talk about the pure politics of it, is just even though you know they would argue that they haven't really changed the underlying policy the fact is it it does let um the press kind of say you know it's another u-turn it's another wavering it's another shift and that is obviously feeds into especially the conservative criticism of labor that um you know starmer has shifted position on various things and so you know it's a, a political misstep perhaps even if even if the fundamentals of the policy haven't really shifted that much it reminds me of the uh, uh, Starmer, Starmer said that he's uh, I'm very comfortable with private schools. It reminds me of the famous quote from Peter Mandelson saying that he's uh, happy about intensely relaxed about people becoming uh, filthy rich. Although Mandelson did say if they pay their taxes, so it's a little bit like uh, uh, happy with private schools, probably that probably they pay a bit more tax. Yeah, which seems to be the, the policy. So you say a kind of a policy tweak rather than a, a policy ditching. Stuart, great to get your uh, thoughts. Thanks so much for coming in. That's our UK government editor, Stuart Biggs, there. Well, another story that could be a big part of the conversation in the run-up to the next election is house prices. The latest figures from the property website Zoopla showing buyers in London and the southeast of England are securing the biggest discounts on asking prices of nearly 5%. Yeah, in the rest of the UK, the average discount was just under 3%. That's the most it's been in four and a half years. Well, earlier we spoke to Richard Donnell, Executive Director of Zoopla, about what their latest survey shows. No, we're certainly... Um fully stuck in a a buyer's market. There's lots of choice out there. We've got, um, you know, the availability of homes has really improved, but that big hit to buying power from mortgage rates, you know, from 2% two years ago to 5% now needs to work its way through into pricing. And so um, sellers are having to price really realistically at an asking price. And then on top of that, they're having to accept nationally an average £12,500 reduction off the asking price. And I think you know pricing remains under downward pressure. House prices are down 0.5% over the last 12 months, with a lot of that 
coming in London, the southeast. What's the outlook then for where house prices go from here over the next 12 to 18 months? Well, I think house prices are not falling as much as many expected. I think we think prices are going to end the year 2 to 3% lower. Uh, the big hit to the housing market has been activity levels. Um, because lenders have got have been doing pursuing forbearance strategies, a lot of people are on fixed rate mortgages. There's there's less stress in the market than we've seen in previous periods uh, and downturns. And so yeah, prices two to three percent lower. And I think you know house price growth is just going to remain very low, falling in real terms into 2024. And I think a lot of a lot of homeowners are sort of holding out till either prices fall or mortgage rates fall or both. I think a lot of homeowners are really waiting on mortgage rates to fall, which again, those falls might not be as big as they hope to then encourage them back into the market to move. Surely, though, the declines are going to accelerate. KPMG says that a tenth of mortgage holders have already sold up for a cheaper property. But interestingly, more forward looking, almost a quarter of British mortgage holders are considering selling up. So this does mean that there's still you know, plenty more uh, potential pressure to come. Absolutely. Look, I think prices are, and again, there's a big difference around the country. You know, the biggest downward pressure on prices in in London, the southeast, the east of England. Um, and again, I, I'm you know, I guess I'm surprised at how much prices haven't fallen yet. And that's because you, we haven't got as many forced sellers as you'd normally see if unemployment was really increasing. And again, I think. Um, so yeah, there is more downside pressure to come. I mean, how much prices falls. Um, remains to be seen, um, but I think uh, I, th- I think it's we're not we're, there's certainly not going to be a pickup in house prices uh, for the foreseeable future. And I think what businesses would like to see, whether it's house builders, estate agents, lenders, I think it's about what happen- needs to happen to pricing to get more volume back into the market. Um, I think that's where where business would be keen just to see prices adjust. And people have got a lot of equity to absorb lower prices, um, but it's 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 at the end of the day, you know, houses will only transact if if the seller you know, sets their price realistically and the buyers are prepared to pay it. How are sellers approaching this market? Is it a question that they're pricing lower from the get-go or are they going in at higher prices and then cutting afterwards? There's, I think people, these properties that are selling are more sensibly priced. So for the homes that have sold in the last three months, 70% of them have not changed their asking price. So it's been set properly and the price has been agreed. When we look at homes that have been on the market for more than three months, you know, 60% of those sellers are probably stuck there without offers coming in, have been cutting prices more aggressively. And I think it's it's really a, a message to, if you're serious about moving, you know, and much as the value of your house will be less than it was a year ago, if you price realistically, you're far more likely to find a buyer. Um, but if you, if you hold out for too high a price, you're just not going to get the interest and then it's going to delay things. Um, a word on the prime market in London, deals above £5 million. I mean, th- there had been this idea that, and, and some and evidence too, that uh, properties were holding up, the ones that weren't um, required to have a mortgage, i.e. You know, cash buyers or the more expensive properties. But it doesn't seem like even that kind of London prime market is immune now. What's your view? No, I think it, it absolutely. I think every market, again, particularly in southern England, look, yields are very low still. I mean, the average yield on property in London is still less than the base rate. Um, you know, there's there's a lack of value for money, um, which has really been um, created by, you know, much higher borrowing costs. And so, yeah, no market's immune. 
Uh, and again, this all links back to the whole um, Brexit, jobs, working from home, you know, London, what's powering London's economy to then attract that inward investment in. So um, again, we're, we're probably set for a, for a good year or so of much weaker market conditions right across the London, the southeast. How much longer are deals taking now to sell a home versus a year ago? Well, where the property's priced properly, it's actually selling. It's not much different to two or three years ago. Um, it's sort of you know 50, 60 days to agree a sale. That's from going on the market to going what's called sold subject to contract. There's then another uh, up to sort of uh, 90 to 100 days to then go through all the legal and financial process. So we haven't seen the time to sell sort of um, really increase dramatically. Uh, because obviously, you know, where there's a willing buyer, willing seller, deals are still happening. It's the so, properties so that are what, sticking on the market. So what proportion of, of, of homes on, on Zoopla are being priced correctly, in your view? Um, I think probably about 50% or so. I mean, I'm just, that's purely plucking a number out of the air. But I think, um, but look, for some people, you know, they might, you might say, well, look, someone might have overpriced a property. But if they need to get that price to then unlock their next move, you know, and they don't need to sell, then people can afford to just wait and potentially hope that someone will will eventually come and buy it. So um, it's all about the sort of psychology of sellers as much as anything. That was Richard Donnell, Executive Director at Zoopla, speaking to myself and Caroline Hepker a little bit earlier. Now, you may not know the name Crispin Odie, but he is, or rather was, a titan of UK finance. The hedge fund manager used his wealth to back Brexit and the Conservative Party, and he once employed Quasi Quarting and was friends with Boris Johnson. In recent months, Crispin Odie has faced multiple allegations of sexual misconduct, which he denies. He was removed as a partner from the firm that bears his name after the claims were made public. Now, our reporter, Will Shaw, has obtained a recording of Odie speaking to a private investigator who had done work for Harvey Weinstein. A little earlier, Will told us what was said during that conversation. It's the recording Crispin Odie would never have wanted making public, basically. Um, he says that Harvey Weinstein had access to um, a lot of much more attractive girls, um, he said, if someone touches you on the bottom, you might be able to get up to a hundred grand. Um, and he talked broadly just about his his attitude to what what the cases, uh, how the case is playing out, or how it was playing out in late June. He said, slowly the truth will come out, and if the truth comes out, then you slowly win back the middle ground. And people say that was very unfair, and it's a totally different game. There was also a slight a slight touch of menace to his voice at some point. He said, I'm I'm just not somebody who gets very bitter. Actually, I tend to get even. Yes. Um, what is Odie's position then uh, on that today in that case? If this is, uh, you know, some time ago that the recording was actually uh, was taken. Um, so his position has changed a bit over the last couple of days. Um, at the point when I first contacted him, which was on Tuesday, he, um, in response to questions about the call and its contents, he initially said, this is all untrue. This is hearsay. Um, we remained in contact. On Wednesday, he changed his line a bit. He said it was very early in that journey, um, referring to the conversation with Seth Friedman. Um, he feels like the reporting is unfair. He says, but I, I, I think still reducing 70 minutes to three sound bites is mean. So he doesn't want to discuss it further. Um, his position has changed a bit. It's gone from being, no, this is all untrue, 
to like know this is effectively mean that I'm being quoted like this. Hmm. Okay. Uh, what What about the the motive? I mean, the the for a private investigator to make this tape available to 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 you, Will. This seems quite extraordinary. Why Why is he making this public? So Seth Friedman he used to work for a private intelligence firm called Black Cube before setting up his own firm in London. He was introduced to Chris Binodi by a mutual acquaintance who knew that he'd worked for Harvey Weinstein. Um, so Seth Friedman says he had no plans whatsoever to make this recording public. And his view is effectively that everybody is innocent until they're proven guilty. Now, Seth Friedman changed his position a couple of days ago after Crispin Odie gave a statement to the Financial Times in which he admitted that, in fact, yes, he had touched one of these women inappropriately, albeit he says he was heavily medica- medicated at the time after a trip to a after a trip to the dentist. Um, now, Seth Friedman says that's that's changed the situation completely. And he now says it's in the public interest that the contents of this conversation are out there. Um, Seth Friedman says it's important for the public records that people hear what he has to say. So that was our finance reporter, Will Shaw, speaking earlier to Caroline Hepker and Anna Edwards. Now, the story around Chris Benodi does have wider ramifications. Two MPs started an investigation this summer into whether firms are doing enough to tackle sexist attitudes in finance, while the regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, has just this week proposed new rules designed to ensure firms can take decisive action against staff accused of sexual misconduct. That was following criticism that it hadn't acted quickly enough on the issue. Well, that's it for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Stephen Carroll. I'm Ewan Potts. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.